I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. We're actually going through a study in the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, Samson gets honorable mention in God's hall of faith. And my original intent was to spend one Sunday highlighting the life of Samson. We are now wrapping up our third Sunday on Samson. That's the way most of my plans go. You know, Samson gets more space than any of the other judges, four chapters. And if you've been with us the last couple times, you realize that Samson's life is pretty disappointing. There aren't any positive moments so far. In fact, Samson's story is a 20-year descent from being chosen and blessed by God to grinding grain in a Philistine prison. You say, well then, why would God give four chapters to this guy? Well, I think the answer is because he is an example to us of what sin can do when we walk by God's stop signs. He walked by God's word. He walked by his parents. He walked by God's providence, a lion in the road. He walked by God's kindness, giving him a drink when he didn't deserve it. And rather than confess his sin, he played with it. You see, you can sin 70 times 7 times and confess it and be forgiven. But when you don't check it, this is what can happen to you. Samson starts out hiding his sin. Then he laughs at his sin. Then he flaunts his sin. And finally, he cohabits with it. He loves his sin. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the classic story of Samson and Delilah. Look with me at verse 4. It says, After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Now, Samson's had a pattern with women. Back in chapter 14 and verse 3, he said to his parents, get that woman for me because she looks good. He was looking at this woman. Chapter 16 and verse 1, he goes into a harlot. Why? Because he lusted after her. Now in chapter 16 and verse 4, what's happening? He loves Delilah. He looked, he lusted, now he loves. The first woman, according to chapter 14 and verse 1, was in the city of Timnah. The harlot, chapter 16 and verse 1, was in Gaza. Delilah is in the valley of Sorek. Now, some people assume that the woman, the harlot mentioned in chapter 16 and verse 1 is the same as Delilah in verse 4, but they're not the same woman. Because that woman lived in Gaza, this woman lives in the valley of Sorek. In fact, in verse 21, it says, when they seized him in the valley of Sorek, they took him down to Gaza. So this is a different woman. He has gone from a Philistine woman to a prostitute to what I would now call sin personified. That's what Delilah is. 
Now, it's interesting, if you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is Solomon writing, and he's addressing, my son, my son, my son. And the book of Proverbs is Solomon telling us how to find wisdom. And it's interesting, in contrast to wisdom, he warns against a wicked, seductive woman. He writes to his son, and he says, you've got to choose wisdom, and the chief competition is going to be a seductive woman woman. Well, Delilah is that woman in Samson's life. She is sin personified. I told you before, Delilah's name means to extinguish. Samson's name means son, S-U-N. And so this is the woman who punches his lights out. This is the woman who extinguishes this big, strong man. Now, this is a familiar story, so I'm not going to go through this verse by verse. Instead, let me just summarize verses 5 to 21. The lords of the Philistines come to Delilah and offer her money to find out where Samson's strength lies and how they can capture him. And so Delilah asks Samson, and he says, If you bind me with seven fresh cords that have never been dried, I'll be as weak as any other man. So she binds him and says, The Philistines are upon you. And it says he snapped the cords like they were on fire. So Delilah says, you've lied to me. Now please tell me. And so he says, if you bind me tightly with new ropes that have never been used, I'll be as weak as any other man. So she bound him and, the Philist and said, the Philistines are upon you. And he snapped the ropes like a thread. And so Delilah asked him again, and he said, if you weave the seven locks of my hair, you know, put it in a bun. So she did and said, the Philistines are upon you, and he jumped up and pulled his hair down. And she kept asking, and finally he said, if you cut my hair off, I'll be weak like any other man. And so she had a barber come in while he was asleep, shaved his hair off, she said, the Philistines are upon you, and they seized him, gouged out his eyes, bound him with bronze chains, brought him down to Gaza, and put him in prison, grinding grain. Now, I'm going to assume you're all familiar with that story. So this morning, what I want to do is emphasize the fact that I think Delilah is sin personified. And I want to pick out some general principles of how sin operates in each of our lives. And I've listed those in your bulletin. First of all, sin is particular. Now, when I use that word, I don't mean that sin is particular about who it goes after. Sin goes after everybody. But it will target each one in a specific way. Sin will target each one of us in a particular way. Notice verse 5. It says, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him and see where his great strength lies. Now that phrase, entice him, indicates that whoever translated this was trying to be polite. Because that phrase literally means seduce him. Now, why do they say this? Well, they say this because Samson has already demonstrated that this is his vulnerability. 
They're saying, we don't know where his strength is, but we do know where his weakness is. He has an eye for the ladies. Let me say something to you that you need to hear. Satan knows you, and he knows where your vulnerability is. You remember Job chapter 1 and verse 7 when when Satan came before God and God said to Satan, where have you been? And he says, I've been walking around on the earth. I've been hanging out on my turf. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, Job who? No, he didn't say that. Satan didn't say, you mean Job Johnson or Job Jones? No. Satan knew exactly who God was talking about. He knew all about Job. He knew where Job lived. He knew about his family. He knew about his income. The only thing he wasn't sure about was his motivation for serving God, but he had a theory about that, and he told it to God. You see, your enemy knows you. And the sin he seeks to tempt you with is specific. It's particular. When Jesus had fasted for 40 days, Satan knew exactly how to tempt him. He said, turn these stones into bread. He knew Jesus, and he knows you. In fact, Revelation 12.10 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, if he's the accuser of the brethren... That tells me he has to have something to accuse. He knows what you do. Now, he's not omniscient, but he's got a whole lot of his own fallen angels who know what you do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But the sin that you do in private, the biggest slanderer in the universe knows about. The the sin that you commit in private and you won't tell anybody about, the biggest gossip in the universe knows about it. And so your sin is open scandal in the halls of hell and even in the presence of God. Your enemy knows you. And the Bible says he shoots fiery darts at us. And I want to suggest to you this morning that those fiery darts are smart bombs. They're not just shot in a general way. They are particular to your vulnerability. Secondly, sin is pleasurable. That doesn't say it here, but I'm assuming that Delilah was Samson's dream girl. And he enjoyed her. That's why that that word entice has the idea of sensuality. Sin is pleasurable. We read in Hebrews 11.25 that Moses gave up the enjoyment of the passing pleasures of sin. What precedes every sin is called temptation, and what makes it tempting is that it promises pleasure. In the very first sin, it says in Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and died. 
Proverbs 9, 17 says, Stolen water is sweet, and food eaten in secret is delicious. Sin is fun. And that's the lure that it has for our flesh. It gives immediate gratification. Sin is pleasurable. Second thing we learn about sin in this passage is that sin is pretentious. It's deceitful. It pretends to be something it's not. You see, Delilah knows Samson, but Samson doesn't really know Delilah. He thinks he knows her, but he's 180 degrees off course. And if he could have peeled back her physical beauty, if he could have peeled back her external facade and seen her heart, he would have fled in fear. Because what he would have seen her to be was a nasty, ugly witch. She had all this beauty on the outside, but in reality, she was a wolf in sheep's clothing. In fact, look at verse 5. They say, entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him, to torment him. You see, they don't want to kill Samson. They want to torture Samson. And Delilah readily buys into that plan. You know, it's easy for us to sit and look objectively at this story and say, what an idiot. How could Samson say, as we find he says in verse 15, how can he say, I love you, to this conniving woman who is selling him into torment for money? How can he say, I love you, to this woman who is saying, I want to torture you? Well, before you're too critical of Samson, I want you to realize this, that the last time you gave in to temptation, you were doing exactly the same thing. I wish I had a nickel for every person I've heard say, I know it's wrong, but. I know the Bible says that, but. You know, temptation is this toxic mixture of pleasure and torture. He loves, she hates. She's deceitful, and that's the nature of sin. Proverbs 23, 31 says, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. It's deceitful. Did you know that Marlboro in the 1920s was a woman's cigarette? wasn't selling very well. Its motto was, it's mild as May. They changed it to a man's cigarette in the 1950s, and they used that macho-looking guy, the Marlboro Man. 
Their motto was, come to where the flavor is, come to Marlboro country. And in the TV commercials, they used that theme from the Magnificent Seven. Made me want to smoke them. You know what Marlboro country is? It's a graveyard. Cancer, emphysema, death. That's the way sin is. It's deceitful. You smoke this cigarette, you'll be the macho Marlboro man. No, you'll be dead. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said, the interesting thing about sin and righteousness is that sin is always desirable at the outset. But in the experiencing of it, in the full development of it, it is detestable. On the other hand, righteousness is always detestable at the outset because it demands submission, humility, selflessness, love. Righteousness is always detestable at the outset, but in the experiencing of it, in the full development of righteousness, it is a delight. I think God designed it that way. So we have to walk by faith and not by sight. You see, if you walk by sight, you will always think obedience is bad and indulgence is good. That's the devil's message. That's his commercial. That's what Paul called in Ephesians 6, the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. Sin is pretentious. Fourthly, sin is persistent. Look at verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. See that phrase? She pressed him daily. That's the way sin is. It's persistent. You say no today and guess what? It shows up tempting you again tomorrow. Reminds me of Potiphar's wife who propositioned Joseph in Genesis 39.10 and says she did so day after day. Sin is persistent. Mike Singletary was the middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. I don't know if you're old enough to remember him. He would stand in the middle, his eyes just bright, looking for somebody to hit. He liked to meet the running back in the hole in the first quarter and just pop him to the ground. And then he would stand over the running back and he would say this, I'll be here all day. Well, that's the way Delilah is. She's patient. She's in no hurry. She's persistent. And that's the way sin is. Sin says, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here all day. Fifth, sin is progressive. I was watching my cat out the window the other day, and, and he was standing in the backyard, and he was just frozen, not moving at all. 
And I looked across the yard, and there was a bird sitting on the yard that he was stalking. And I watched him, and every time the bird would stick its head down in the ground looking for a worm, my cat would move one foot and then freeze. Bird would stick up his head, look around, stick his head down, one more foot, freeze. He was progressively inching toward that bird until he could get close enough to strike. That's the way sin operates in our lives. Takes a little bit at a time and freezes and then waits and takes a little more and a little more. We've watched that progression in Samson's life. When he first sinned, he hid it. And then he polluted others with it, his parents. Then he laughed about it. And then he openly and defiantly flaunted it. We see it in this chapter. We see him going, in verse 7, he says, if you'll tie cords around me, it'll make me weak. Then he says in verse 11, if you put ropes around me, a little bigger, it'll make me weak. Then he says in verse 13, if you weave the locks of my hair together. Now he's getting to the right vicinity. And then finally, in verse 17, he says, cut off my hair. And I think, I think we see more evidence of that in this chapter as well. Because there are three things I see about Samson in this chapter that tell me that sin has progressed in his life. Number one, he is dull. He has gone from clever, he used to tell riddles, to dumb. Notice the question that Delilah asks him in verse 6. Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Now that isn't even, you know, she's not using anything coy at all. Tell me how I can bind you and torment you. And he says, Try seven cords. Try seven ropes. uh, Tie up my hair. Finally, cut off my hair. If you read this story to your children, they're going to ask the question, what's wrong with Samson? Why is he so dumb? Why is he so thick? And the answer is, that's what sin does. It makes you dull. Remember the rich Jewish kid who asked for his inheritance in Luke 15 and squandered it and ended up envying a pig? Jesus said when he was in the pig pen, he came to his senses. Why? Because sin makes you dull. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Schizophrenia comes from two Greek words. Schizo means to divide. Phren or phrenia means the mind. And so that word literally means your mind is divided from the real world. The schizophrenic doesn't just dream about being the king of England. He thinks he is. 
With that understanding, let me suggest to you that sin makes you moral and theological schizophrenics. Sin causes you to think that wrong is good and right is bad. One of the hardest parts of being a pastor is that I have often have had to watch people destroy their marriage, their kids, their friendships, their health. And when you reason with them from God's word, they argue about how wrong you are and how right they are. And meanwhile, you've got to watch them basically dipping themselves in battery acid spiritually. Samson is dull in this chapter. Second progression, he's overconfident. Look at verse 19. It says, she made him sleep on her knees. He just told her, if you cut my hair off, I'll be weak like any other man. And then he goes to sleep on her knees. Now, why isn't he afraid? Because he's Samson. And he doesn't think anybody can hurt him. He's bulletproof. He has played with sin for so long that he doesn't see it as a threat. Back in 1999, a, a, the dean of a well-known divinity school had a computer at his house that belonged to the seminary, and so he asked one of the technicians there to come over and put a bigger hard drive in his computer. So he came over and was going to put the bigger hard drive in, so he was loading his hard drive onto this bigger hard drive and it took the entire day to download it. And so he wondered why it was taking so long to do this and so he checked on the computer and the computer was full of pornographic images that took so long to download. And he ended up in a scandal and lost his job. But he apparently thought He'd gotten so far into sin, he thought, nobody can catch me at this. I'm, I'm bulletproof. And so he, he had the audacity to ask somebody from the seminary to come over and get him a bigger hard drive so he could download more pornography. Sin makes you overconfident to the power of that sin. So Samson is dull, he's overconfident, and finally... He is hardened in this chapter. Look at verse 20. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And here's the sober statement. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The Lord is no longer there, and he doesn't even notice. He's so scabbed over. He's so calloused. He's been living so long as a pragmatic atheist that his lampstand goes out, and he's oblivious. Sin is progressive. Sixthly, 
Sin is painful. Look at verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him and his strength left him. Now, I had not noticed this before in the story. I, I kind of thought Delilah was there and, and uh, she was being forced to uh, kind of uh, find out the secret of Samson's strength and then she kind of backed out of the scene. But it's interesting here. You see that phrase? She afflicted him. I imagine she probably punched him and pinched him and bit him and kicked him. She afflicted him. She, she's now doing what she has wanted to do all along. Satan takes great joy in afflicting people. Classic example of that in Scripture is Legion in Mark chapter 5. He is demon-possessed, and the Bible t says he was living among the tombs and cutting himself with rocks. Sin promises pleasure, but ultimately it delivers pain. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking what? Someone to devour. And Samson got devoured. Look at verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. They seized him. You ever see an owl come down on a field mouse? That's the idea here. They seized him. And then it says they gouged out his eyes. His eyes will no longer look in lust. They've been gouged out. He is bound with bronze chains. He's no longer going to wander. And he has no more self-confidence. He is humiliated. He is grinding grain like an animal. That's a job for an ox. And they give it to Samson. And this is where sin wants to take you because sin is painful. You see, the Philistines don't want to kill Samson. They want to torment him. And not only that, but they want to celebrate his failure. Look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And then if you look at verse 24, it says they praised their God. Verse 25, they were in high spirits. They wanted Samson to amuse them. They wanted Samson to entertain them. They are celebrating his failure. Years ago, Jimmy Swaggart had a debate with a Muslim leader. Later, he was caught with a prostitute in New Orleans and the front page of every Muslim publication read, Jimmy Swaggart caught with harlot. They celebrated his failure. And I would say to you that there's nothing your pagan buddies would love more than to see you commit adultery or be caught with pornography or even cuss at work. You know why? because that helps absolve their guilt. They celebrate the failure 
of a Christian. Sin is painful. Donald Gray Barnhouse said about this verse, sin is binding, blinding, and grinding. It's a painful thing. And then finally, sin is postscriptable. Now, that's not a word, but it fits my outline. You see, Samson's story could have ended in verse 21, but it doesn't. There's a postscript. And I want you to see it in verse 22. It's the word, however. There there are certain words in Scripture that are pretty exciting. Ephesians chapter 2, when it says we were dead in our trespasses and sin and all that negativity, and then it says, but God. Here's another exciting word. All this failure in Samson's life, and we get to this verse 22, and it says, however. Let me stop right there and ask you something. Have you got a however in your life story? You may have a lot of failure. I hope you've got a however in your story. You say, you see, if we're, if we're, we're reading at this point, we're saying, well, how did Samson ever get into Hebrews chapter 11? And the answer is, he had a however in his life. Notice verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Now, I want, you, I want to tell you this. His hair growing back is not what made him strong. His hair growing back is reflective of a renewed vow on the part of Samson to God. You see, what he wouldn't do voluntarily at the temple, go there, have his hair cut off like a Nazarite should, and start his vow over, what he wouldn't do voluntarily, he has done for him by the Philistines. And the fact that his hair is growing back is reflective of what's going on inside of him. There's repentance, humility, and brokenness. And you know how I know that's happening in Samson's life? Because he does something he's never done in his entire life. He prays for strength. His first and only other prayer was in chapter 15 and verse 18, and it was, I'm thirsty. This prayer is for a much deeper need. Look at his prayer in verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God. O Lord God. It's interesting, if you look at his first prayer, he didn't mention God because that prayer was all about him. Now it's O Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant God. Please. He didn't say please in his first prayer. He assumed he was going to get it. He should get it. Now he says, please. And notice he says, remember me. That's humility. I don't deserve this, but please remember me. And then he says, just this time. You see, this is a sacrificial prayer. 
He's prized his body so much, now he's throwing his body away. In fact, the rest of his prayer is in verse 30 where he says to God, let me die with the Philistines. And look at verse 29. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. Does that posture remind you of anybody? Reminds me of Jesus on the cross who died in our place. Notice what it says in the rest of verse 30. It says, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Isn't that interesting? God did more with him in his weakness than he ever had done before in his strength. Now, come back to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. I want to show you something. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. The writer says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, there he is, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, that's not Samson, performed acts of righteousness, that's surely not Samson, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, that's not Samson, Quenched the power of fire? No. Escaped the edge of the sword? No. From weakness were made strong. That's Samson. We don't think of him that way because he spent his whole life showing us that being strong makes you really weak. But in the end, he teaches us the lesson that when I am weak, then am I strong. Can I close by asking you a couple questions? Have you found sin to be particular, aiming at your vulnerability, to be pleasurable, to be pretentious, pretending to be something it's not, to be persistent and progressive and painful? I think we all have. But if so, do you have a postscript? As Paul Harvey says, do you have the rest of the story? You see, here's the real message that I see in this chapter. If your whole life, like Samson, is three and a half chapters of failure, if your whole life has been you running through God's stop signs, God has a way to bring you back. God has a way of putting a positive ending on that story. God has a way of getting you from that situation into his hall of faith. God wants to put a however on your life story. And all you have to do is repent. All you have to do is turn around and pray this same simple prayer. Oh God, Please remember me. 
I'm going to have the praise team come back, and we're going to sing together a song, a, a, a prayer very similar to that. We're going to sing, Lord, have mercy on me. Let's make this our closing prayer today as we pray it in reality before the Lord. Let's stand.